From the pages of the Blizzard, the Football Quarterly, we bring you the Blizzard Podcast, a weekly look back through the Blizzard archives, where we bring you some of our favourite articles to have appeared in the magazine since we began back in 2011. As we mentioned in episode 51, this week's episode is a live recording of our Q&A event at the National Football Museum as part of the Manchester Football Writing Festival. Those of you who followed on Twitter live during the Q&A will know that we suffered some technical issues in trying to record the audio of the evening. For reasons far too boring to go into, we were unable to take the live feed from the microphones and so had to bodge together some sort of a compromise. That said, we've done what we can to clean it up and would rather bring you some recording than none at all. Due to the length of the evening's proceedings, we're splitting the podcast into two parts and rest assured that the audio quality in part two is better than part one. The first voice you hear is that of Matt from Waterstones, who are the founders of the Football Writing Festival, before being passed on to our panel of Rory Smith, Jonathan Wilson, Jack Pitbrook and Philippe Auclair. Right, no further ado, I'll um, pass you over to Rory, who will introduce tonight's panel. Um, there'll be a Q&A section at one point and I'll run around with the mic as best I can. But for now, Rory, thank you. Thank you very much. I should apologise, I've got no idea how to hold this. It's kind of you lose it, you take the mic yeah, thank you very much for joining us. This is the Blizzard Live. Uh, to my far left, we have Jonathan Wilson, the founder of the Blizzard, the man who set up his own magazine because he couldn't believe that nobody would let him write 7,000 word pieces about Saint-Étienne in the 1970s. Uh, we have Jack, Jack Pitt-Brook, uh, the best and only football reporter at the Independent Name. <laughs> and he was the best before he was the only. And Philippe Auclair, the raconteur, renaissance man, musician, and football journalist you go to when Julien Laurent isn't available. <laughs> or to the twenty. Uh, let's start, seeing as yesterday was transfer deadline day, let's start with your favourite transfer stories. Jonathan. Well, there's a whole subcategory of, of transfers which involve players being signed in their pyjamas. So Roy McFarlane famously was signed by Brian Club from Tranmere in his pyjamas. But I think that the really odd one with this is Mauricio Pochettino, when he was first picked up by Neil's old boys. And Marcelo Bielsa was the uh, youth coordinator of Neil's. And he divided Argentina into 700 units, because, you know, meticulous as, as he is. Uh, probably he hates flying, so you have to drive each of the 700 in his Fiat 147. Um, and it, he, he arranged a trial game in, in each one. And he hears this country very close to home, very close to Santa Fe. Um, it's like the problem Santa Fe, where, where uh, Rosario, where Neil's a base. Um, the, the, the trial game there, there's a centre back who looks very good. But because he's driving around the country, he gets there, gets there late. Um, so he ends up going to this, this kid's home. Probably is 11 at the time. And 14. 14? <laughs> Could you just not mention that on Saturday? It's not in the book. Um, and uh, it's sort of you know, two in the morning when he, when he gets to the Pochettino family house in, in Murphy, this, this village in Santa Fe near his alley. And um, he gets there and says, uh, I'm pretty certain I want to, want to sign young Mauricio. Uh, I just um, kind of have a look. Okay. So he goes in his bedroom, lifts up the blankets, looks at his legs, says, yep, footballer's legs will have it. 
<laughs> so that's how Matthew Pochettino signed Neil's old boys. A, a damning indictment of the Pochettino family values. <laughs> Letting a strange man look at their teammates from as he slept. <laughs> um, uh, I'm showing my age here because I, I'm, I'm going back to the uh, 1920s. Um, 1928. You're not that old. No, it's fine. I'm not. Uh, in 1928, um, I think that the world transfer record was beaten by Arsenal, uh, by David Jack from Bolton Wanderers. Um, but they should have paid even more than they paid at the time, which is, they, in the end, they paid about £10,000, something like that, which now, they couldn't about 800 grand, which is, so it was quite a sum. But anyway, um, Herbert Chapman was a genius, of course, but a devious genius. He went to Bolton with uh, his secretary, Mr. Wall, and to the hotel where he was supposed to meet with the directors of Bolton Wanderers. And he went to see the barman and he said, um, slipping a couple of one pound banknotes in his hand, he said, um, this gentleman, Mr. Wall, will have gin and tonic. I will have whiskey and ginger. Of a gentleman whom we are going to see in a minute will have whatever they like. Make sure that you give them a double. And, by the way, Mr. Wall's gin and tonic would have no gin in it, and my whiskey and ginger won't have any whiskey. And he got them absolutely plastered like that, and he saved £2,000 by literally having the Bolton directors rolling under the table. So, uh, you know, he was a genius, Chapman, obviously, but even in that way, too. Absolutely. Yes. Again, another story that kind of suggests that morals of football are not quite all they might be. Jack, can you save us from this den of debauchery? Um, maybe. So my story's from a topic very close to my heart, which is pre-takeover Manchester City, particularly that kind of crazy few years just before the uh, just before Abu Dhabi showed up, when City had this fantastic new stadium, but didn't really have the players, the manager, or the officials to to kind of fill it properly. And what about Sven? Well, yeah, I mean, this is one of the highlights of the Sven era. So it was January 2008, and City had started the 2007-8 season very well, but then they tailed off a bit. And they, they clearly needed new strikers. They, I think they had up front uh, Rolando Bianchi, Darius Cassell, uh, Valerie Bozhinov, who was injured, Emil Penza, who wasn't very good. Best man in the world. And City decided that the, the, the man to save them and to save their season was Benjani Mwaruwari from Portsmouth. <laughs> and they, you know, they agreed a deal with Portsmouth but they weren't, City were never incredibly enthusiastic about it because they were also signing Felipe Caicedo from FC Basel. But um, Benjani didn't particularly want to come to City. He had quite a nice life on the south coast. Uh, Manchester was you know, quite a long way away. And so he fell asleep in Southampton Airport on deadline day. He was meant to get the three o'clock flight to Manchester, but he missed it. Then he was meant to get the five o'clock flight to Manchester, but he was still asleep for that one too. The 7 o'clock flight was cancelled, the 8 o'clock flight was delayed, and he didn't get to Manchester until midnight, and City couldn't, City couldn't get the paperwork done. And by the time they realised that Benjani wasn't going to be there in time, City tried to pull out the deal. But unfortunately, they'd already faxed the papers off to Portsmouth. Uh, their attempts to not sign Benjani were in vain. And to their frustration, a few days into February 2008, the Premier League and FA confirmed that unfortunately Benjani would be a Manchester City player after all, and they would have to pay Portsmouth the £4 million fee. Um, and I think Benjani, 
Bentani did in fact go on to score in the derby in February that year, so he, he will always be an important player in City's history, but it's funny that story, just, you know, that's only six months before the Abu Dhabi takeover, and yet it's a story which shows, I mean, a completely different club, really, in terms of, in terms of professionalism and organisation. Yeah, like the Eliakim Mangala purchase shoot tool and something. If we just sit here and talk about central defenders, City have overpaid for, we'll be here all night. I want to move on to kind of transfer deadline in general, the transfer window in general. It's, it's a busy day for journalists, though perhaps not really for the journalists sitting here. Other people were working really hard yesterday. Um, how was it for you, transfer deadline day? Um, I had some friends round for dinner. <laughs> and that's it. I, I, did, I, did, I did a really big clean, fantastic. I, I mean, part of my, you caused part of my problem uh, in that um, last year we were on together on Five Lads College. I was obviously so bad they didn't ask me back. I requested them not to find them. <laughs> but they, they did have me back on at 6.30 this morning, which is actually the worst of all worlds because I had to sit up to about midnight last night to find out what happened, then go to bed, then go up at 5.30 this morning in case I missed anything to prepare. But what were actually, in the end, some pretty um, straightforward questions from Nicky Campbell. Jonathan, um, when he told us this story before, said that the reason he had to get up so early was because Nicky Campbell had to talk to him. Like it was an important matter of state. <laughs> Nicky Campbell just couldn't bear not to speak to Jonathan at 6.30 in the morning. Perhaps. <laughs> what, it, it's the first billion pound window, which is something apparently we're all meant to be very excited about. Yesterday, the deadline day is never as exciting as everyone thinks it's going to be. Then Moussa uh, Sissoko, Jack Wilshire, was kind of better than it has been the last few years. David Luiz was quite funny. David Luiz coming out of nowhere. Was the amount of money we've just seen spent obscene? Was it ridiculous? Should we be angrier about it than we are? I can't see why we should be angry. Um, and in terms, in net terms, it's about 750 million, so it's not a billion. It's still an awful lot of money. Drop in the ocean. Yeah, drop in the ocean. But no, that's, um, I think it's quite logical that um, such huge amounts would be, would be spent. Um, it's just supply and demand, basically. Um, I, don't, I don't know why we get so upset about that. Uh, I, I see things such as um, we should put this money into grassroots football. Well, I don't know, a club owner, it's not, his job is not to look after grassroots football. And in fact, the success, I mean, there will be, I think, about a billion pounds invested by uh, the Premier League and grassroots football over the uh, three years of the current contract. So, no, I genuinely don't know why people are getting on their moral high horse about that. But I think there is a slight, I accept it's not a moral issue, um, and then a lot of the money is self-generated, a lot of it comes from, from TV revenue, so it is people wanting to watch football, and obviously one of the things they want to watch is big-name players. You get big-name players by buying... By, you know, by paying big money. In fact, you create big name players by paying big money. I think where there is a slight issue is with the distribution of that money. And I, I, you know, the, the fact that we're slightly insulated in England and that we have sort of six just about clubs that could win the league this season. I think the problem is when you look at Italy or, or Germany or France, where even though like PSG lost on, on Sunday, we, we all know who's going to win. I know that I'm trying to tell you that Russia Dortmund are going to win Germany this season, but I'd be, I mean, maybe they will, but the dominance of Bayern, PSG, and Juventus is, you know, I, I, don't know, I don't know how you watch football in those countries. It's so dull, you know, no one's going to win. And that then has a knock-on effect in the Champions League. So I think there is an issue of distribution of money. Um, and I think what we've seen in this transfer window 
So what, what I think we saw last year, or what, what a lot of people, and myself did speculate, was that we'd seen the rise of the premium to middle class because of the prospect of a new TV deal, and that's why it became more competitive. It's not why Leicester won it, but it's why more teams were able to challenge, why the bigger teams found sort of games against the mid-table a bit, a bit tougher. And I think what we've seen is a, the big teams reassert themselves this summer. Mm -hmm. United paying 90 million, whatever it was, for Pogba. The fact that 30 million has suddenly become a normal sum to pay for you know, a B-plus player, and 50 million is suddenly not extraordinary. So that that is something that is only possible because the distribution is too skewed towards the top end. But that's not, that's not a moral issue, that's a, an internal problem for football finance. Do you think that the the mid-ranking clubs are spending that money intelligently? Or do you think that, you know, Christian Banteki, 30 million pounds, Yannick Bellassi, 30 million pounds, even players to go all the way out of the Premier League into the Championship, you know, four, four Championship players have been, four, four players have been bought by Championship teams for 10 million pounds this summer. And it's like the, um, the kind of silliness of spend, top teams have always spent big money, but now mid-table and even Championship teams have kind of, Got their got their hands into the action basically. But is the, the, the change to me is 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 in that it's that there's a compulsion to spend now that, that it's almost a virtue. So we and it's not saying on Twitter yesterday the immediate reaction was to blame Jim White. Jim White is held massively responsible for the nature of football in this country. To be honest, I think that's overstating his power. But or on Sky or on the media in general. But there is a there is a culture now whereby we associate, we equate success with purchasing. And almost to the extent that, this has been, it was an argument we've been made before, but the transfer deadline day is kind of bigger than cup final day now. Because when I was a kid, cup, the cup final was still the highlight of the season. Partly the only game that was on TV. But now transfer deadline day is, if you look at like, traffic on websites, you look at what newspapers report on, where the stories are, where the engagement is, it's transfers. And that, that's a major change in football. Well, there's that great line from um, Juan Malio, who was huge in terms of Guardiola, you know, sort of never quite achieved great things with, the, with, with clubs in Spain. His assistant coach with Chile when they won the Cup of America. But great line of his, the garnish is a mistake. And I think you see that with modern football, that the trappings of football have obviously become more important than the game itself. But, you know, nobody reads match reports anymore. What people want to read is, you know, your predictions for the coming season. Then you get views for them. Why are you using for a prediction? Like, life will prove that I'm really happy. He's been talking about that for an hour. Absolutely. <laughs> I think the same thing is true of the Ballon d'Or. The idea that um, for lots of young players now, I mean, even and Paul Pogba is probably the best example of it, but I'd say it's true of almost any, any big player born in the 90s or beyond. Like, their number one motivation in football is often to win the Ballon d'Or. And whereas in the good old days, you used to think that the Ballon d'Or was a kind of happy byproduct of winning the European Cup or winning the World Cup or winning a title. Now, the Ballon d'Or... in the case of yeah. tennis law. Uh, the Ballon d'Or is the point. The Ballon d'Or is your ambition. And the Champions League and the World Cup are a means to get there. In the same way as all Olympic sports are essentially an audition for the sports programs in the year. It's also the... Um, you could say it's the number of uh, followers you've got on Instagram is a far better indicator of your market value than perhaps your prowess on the field, things like that. But I mean, it's all, I mean, we are victims of that. We're all victims and, and, and winning actors, I must say, from time to time. But it's just yet, a, yet another step further away from reality. 
which seems to be affecting football in general in almost every single aspect you can think of, be it uh, the way it's filmed, being the way it's reported about, being uh, the things that people are interested in, or the fact that they're all on their FIFA 16 games and fantasy football. So we're, we're stepping further and further away from reality. As though football is the kind of the node from which all this other stuff has grown, it's, al it's almost become a lifestyle, whereas which I guess takes you further and further away from the act of actually going to a game, watching a game, supporting your team. Well, there's that great, great line of Alex Ferguson when he's, you know, he said that, um, I mean, this is you know, some 10 years ago, maybe more. Come it was one of his former players, one of his mates was under pressure of another job. And you know, he was saying that, you know, the world is, or football has become like reality TV, that everybody thinks they have a right to vote somebody off every week. So it's always a manager facing the sack. Uh, and there's a sort of demand for blood because you know, the, the, the logic of reality TV dictates that's what, ha that's what happens. The, the narrative needs sacrifice. Well, I think that, I mean, that's very much a part of something we've seen, and this is the longer thing we've seen over the last 20 years, is that fandom, or being a fan, has grown in such a way that going to the football matches is kind of a smaller and smaller part of the bigger thing. And or or even going, I mean, Jonathan Lewin, if you saw his piece in Taliban, uh, this week, saying that football now is this problem. That you know, if you're Barcelona, and I think you see it probably with United more than City, but that it becomes a tourist experience. That the people want to go to the, the, the Camp Nou, or they want to go to Old Trafford, and they want to experience what it is to be at Old Trafford. And that probably means that team winning quite comfortably. What they don't want to see, they don't, you know, they don't want to go to the Camp Nou and see, you know. Almeria grinding out a 1-0 win. They want to see Barcelona performing the tricks and winning 4-0. And so then it becomes... Who, who said goals are overrated? <laughs> I, I can't think which stage that was, but it's um, a very wise man, certainly. We, sorry, Jack, I interrupted you. No, I was going to say that in terms of social media, that's made a massive impact as well. I'm saying this because we're about to take a question from Twitter, Gareth. Um, but that seems to have changed the way that, certainly that... that you, news about football is reported. And Transfer Deadline Day is, is the best example of the power of social media. Yeah, I mean, it's amazing. The, um, I, think, I think the biggest change that social media has made is that fans can spend more time being fans than they would have done in the past. Like, before social media, you could, you could go to games, you could go to reserve games, you could make a fanzine, you could talk, you know, talk about your team with your mates in the pub, but there were there was still lots of dead time where you weren't actively being a fan, whereas if you're on Twitter or on Facebook and you're talking about your team all the time and you're criticising anyone who might not agree with you about that team, then you are kind of actively being a fan for, for, an, you know, for basically all of your waking life. And that, is, and that, I think, has bred a kind of... I mean, obsession's the wrong word, but it's, it's bred a kind of... A different, I think a different type of fandom to what you see in the past. Well, it's increased to me, it's increased the tribalism of it, so, and this is just a personal theory, but when, when in the age before social media, before football was sort of, had reached saturation point, you would, your team would play at the weekend, probably lose, and then you would go to school or work or whatever, and the people who supported the other team would take the piss out of you for a day. If it was a bad defeat, it might stretch into Tuesday, but then by Wednesday, you're kind of thinking, well, you know, we're playing Oxford at the weekend, so, or Sheffield United or whoever, we'll batter them, it'll be fine. 
and then you kind of got those couple of days off, you kind of you didn't have to endure the defeat. Whereas social media means you're exposed to it constantly, and therefore everything matters more to you. So if your team loses, you're going to be angrier because that means you can't go on Twitter for a week. Yeah, I think there's I think there's definitely a kind of and tribalism is the right word, defensiveness, quickliness, a desperation to save face, which has been bred by people being fans all the time. And I think, you know, I think you're exactly right. I think it's kind of, I think this is, I think this is a new thing. And it's, if you, are, if you are somebody, I mean, I'm sure you all spend time t talking about football on social media. If you do that, you'll recognize that you kind of, you talk to people who are not like, they're not like you know your mates who might support different teams, or they're not like people you go to the pub with after a game to discuss the game. They're people who are kind of driven by this obsessiveness and this obsession with defending their team and criticising anyone who, who dares to slag them off. And, and the oddity of that is people who clearly have no connection with the team, they, you know, no sort of geographical or, or familial connection with the team they support. So, you know, the number of times you'll, you'll say something about Messi or Ronaldo and suddenly there'll be some, I don't know, to, to pick a city at random, some kid from Bangalore lecturing you on why you're wrong in the context of the Spanish Civil War. I have personal experience in both these conflicts and can safely say you're better off discussing Israel and Palestine than Messi and Ronaldo on the internet. Yeah. Speaking, of, speaking of which, Gareth, what have we got? Um, sticking with the, the transfer deadline day thing uh, that we touched on earlier, uh, Matt's stories asked, how can we convince more young players to follow Burke and Hart and Co to go abroad? I've seen some ex-pros say it's not a good idea, which is worrying. It's an excellent question. Uh, feel free to have your questions ready as well because you're more than welcome. This is an interactive experience. We're on the internet. It's thoroughly modern. Uh, <laughs> but we'll, we'll, we'll start with this. Jack? Um, I think there's... Well, I think there's a very, I think you've got to kind of unpick the question a bit there, because there's two different issues. There's young, young English players going abroad, which I think is a, a fantastic thing. I mean, the best example I can think of is Eric Dyer. Like Eric Dyer, not, he, didn't, he didn't go to abroad for football, he went abroad for family reasons, but he spent his teenage years at Sporting Lisbon, at which he learnt a tactical intelligence and flexibility, which is seen in his two years at Tottenham, he's played at centre-back, at right back and most successfully in, in holding midfield and if you look at the careers of say Michael Richards or Phil Jones, two English players of similar profile, similar build, who completely failed to make those transitions between positions, who never, who never developed the intelligence or the flexibility required to succeed at a top level club. Um, and just look at the success of Dyer compared to those two and that shows you that it's a very good idea for young English players to do that. I mean. In terms of other examples, there's a uh, guy called Mandela Egbo, who's 19 years old, who left Crystal Palace, turned down very good money, a professional deal there, to go to Bristol Munch and Gladbach last summer. Um, and he shows that because he knew that he had a better chance of turning into an intelligent, well-developed, clever, modern footballer at Bristol Munch and Gladbach than at Palace, where he'd probably get loaned out to League One, then he might get loaned out to the Championship, and it probably wouldn't work out for him. Similarly, um, Bristol City this summer brought a boy called Taylor Moore, who'd been in the academy at Longs for the last few years. Moore, again, is he actually looks a lot like Eric Dyer and plays a bit like him too. He can play centre-back, right-back, he can play in midfield. And the hope of Bristol City is that he will have that flexibility, that intelligence from having played abroad that will serve him very well in his career. So young players, definitely. 
there's a slightly different issue there, which is older players. Like, it's, it's not uncommon for English players in their late 20s who are looking for a bit of a restart to go abroad. And that, you know, Hart is a very good example of that. Jack Wilshire would have been had he gone to Roma this week. But I mean, the evidence doesn't suggest that it always works. I mean, Michael Richards went to Italy, Ashley Cole went to Italy, Joey Barton went to France. Don't forget Cousin Cousin Richards. Yeah, uh, Joe Cole went to France, and no, cousin, cousin. none of them came back better players. Like That's it's not, nightmare. you know, it, it's not guaranteed that. I think that the young players who can learn, a great idea. Older players who are too old to learn, there's no guarantee you'll come back any better. Well, yes, but uh, historically, I mean, there's this thing, that this idea. Uh, I I agree up to a point. I mean, there have been so many successful exports from British footballers and even from English footballers. I mean. British footballers, you could say, well, John Charles at Juve and um, Gareth Bale at, at, you know, uh, it's quite, quite remarkable. Even Mark Hughes at, at, at Bayern Munich, who has actually had a very good season there. But actually, when you look back in the past, and not so far, far ago past, you, you, you have players like Mark Haightley, uh, Charles Stephen, um, Graham Rakes, Glenn Hoddle, Chris Waddle, who played, I mean, um, who played abroad and were actually born in, actually, at, at Internationale, was, was also a success. So there is nothing in the, the DNA of the English footballer which would prevent him to be tactically adaptable, even if I'm talking from players, about players from 20 years ago. Um, there's nothing that prevents him from, from being a success abroad. I, I, I think with, you say your point on, on young players, it's just an issue getting young players to play football. You, um, Daniel Sturridge played, when, when he turned 23, he played, I think, 48 Premier League games at the age of 23. By the time Lionel Messi was 23, he'd scored more than 200 goals in La Liga. Now, I'm not suggesting that Sturridge is the same as Messi, but, you know, in, in that sort of five or six years, to play only, you know, what's on average of eight games a season, that, that's just not enough. So Daniel Sturridge's career choices were poor in the sense they didn't get in football. Now, whether he should have got that playing for, you know, the equivalent of Bournemouth, I mean, he did play for Bolton for a while, but or whether he should have, would have been better off going abroad, but then you've got to somehow stimulate that interest abroad to get you to move to a club at the requisite level. I don't think foreign clubs don't look at England as a viable market because the wages are out of their reach, even for average players. They, they know, I think, that, and England's not the only major nation where players don't really travel because Italy doesn't have a huge tradition of sending players out to other countries. Even Germany tends to be, there was a sort of influx of Germans into, into Serie A at late 80s, 70s, 80s. Generally, the Germans stay in Germany or have until the game kind of globalised. So England's not alone in that. But I think there is a, as Philippe says, there's no, there's no sort of technical DNA sort of no, yeah. natural reason that English players can't be intelligent. But there is definitely a cultural block on English players, maybe English people looking abroad. I, I think you know, to to take a you know, specific example this week, I think Jack Rush is on the right thing, not moving abroad. Because I think there's a, you know, he will play for them. And if he's not playing, we'll know exactly why it is. And also then can talk to Eddie Howe and find out what's going on. If he went to, say, Roma, you can imagine maybe Wilson doesn't settle. You know, maybe, you know, he has an issue with, I don't know, the, the way training's set up there. Or he, he can't communicate with teammates or he feels homesick. He doesn't know what the Italian for minor knock is. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, he suddenly finds himself on the periphery for reasons that aren't, Specifically to do with football, where what he, what he clearly needs to get over the injuries to get miles in his legs, and he's pretty certain to get that in Bournemouth. And if he doesn't get it, we'll understand why. 
whereas he introduced a whole range of other factors if he moved abroad. Yeah, I, I agree on Wilson entirely, but Joe Hart going to Torino has kind of changed my opinion of Joe Hart. I kind of like Joe Hart now. Do you think, <laughs> do you think Joe Hart has the humility, humility to learn? <laughs> I don't know how to understand what you just said. <laughs> even Joe Hart has the humility to learn. Even has the yeah, yeah, yeah. It's the even that's uh, yeah. the. I, I'm not. Yeah, that's a good question. We're, we're going to find out. Mm -hmm. The yeah, there, there was. I think was it Mark Ogden who wrote a piece in the Indy that said that if you look at the problem with Joe Hart for a couple of years, he's been shot lower to his left, and this whole thing about his feet that Guardiola's kind of zoomed in on might be a little bit of a red herring. There is kind of a technical flaw in Joe Hart. Yeah, I, I don't know, but the, the fact that he's gone to Italy suggests that maybe there is a level to Joe Hart that he's kept very well hidden. But what is extraordinary, and that shows an awful lot about the mindset, not of Joe Hart, which I find quite admirable on that, on that occasion, is the fact that the move was described as um, you know, stepping down from being number two at Manchester City and going to, I think it was used, the expression used was Minnow, talking about the seven times Serie A champions and winners of five Coppa Italia and of home of one of the greatest teams in the, in the history of football, but they were winners. That shows that perhaps the, uh, uh, the, 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 the short-mindedness uh, is not with the players, it's more with all of us, well, basically. To be, to be fair, Torino haven't won the league since 949. <laughs> I mean, they if, if you went, if you went to six times English league champion Sunderland, that would have been to see Sunderland. By the way, how is it that you're not Either in a Sunday shot or in front of one. Well, I, I've made sure it's uh, top and centre. <laughs> uh, do we have any questions from the audience of people who would like to talk about things that may or may not be Joe Hart's attitude? <laughs> yeah, I could tell you one thing, one or two things about Joe Hart's attitude, but perhaps we better leave that for the moment. Um, to, to bring together a couple of things you were talking about before, I, I was on an American sports podcast last night. And the question was raised about um, the financial dominance of the Premier League compared to all the other European leagues. Of course, we talked about the money. We talked about the French, uh, Italian, German leagues becoming a, a kind of one-horse race. Is there um, a feeling that perhaps that the foreign, the bigger foreign teams will look at the Premier League and the, the, the pressure for a European Super League, which is uh, financed to the same level as the Premier League, will grow? I, I, I think that is a natural conclusion to think, yeah, that the, that the Italians, the Spanish, the French and the Germans will look at it and think, right, the only way we can match this is if we get together. And I think there's, there's moves about the Atlantic League, there's mention of that coming back, I think there's conversations about like a Balkan League, the Derby's be fun in that. Um, <laughs> a Russian and Ukrainian League, which if Putin has his way might just be the Russian League. So they're sort of talking about breaking down those borders, and Holland and Belgium are already talking about it. So yeah, to me, that's a logical conclusion. I yeah, like I completely agree. And the fact they're talking now about um, pan-national leagues, I think that's an admission of failure. That what the Premier League put, I mean, it is far from perfect. What it has got right is the collective negotiation of, of broadcasting rights. So it means that if you finish bottom of the Premier League this season, you'll get more money than if you win the Champions League. Um, and obviously you get far more than that if you finish top. But there is at least some kind of uh, equality between top and bottom, so that the bottom teams are not being cast miles adrift. Uh, whereas, you, you know, you look at every other European league where you don't have, I mean, I know Spain and they in collective bargaining, but too late. And I think that's what's happened, is that Spanish, French, German, Italian clubs, or, you know, the, the one or two at the top are thinking, you know, 
Like, that's why the Premier League's winning. That's why the Premier League's doing so well. A, the market's not brilliant, but B, the games are competitive. And you do have big star players, at, at even the, 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 the weakest teams. But they can't suddenly produce that. I mean, Bayern Munich can't go around and suddenly go to Ingolstadt. You know what, there's 30 million. Why don't you buy some players as well? Um, and so the, the way to kind of create a, you know, competitiveness is kind of to start again and to have some kind of pan national league where you start your, your revenue distribution in a more equitable manner. One interesting thing I pulled about Germany, um, which is a country where traditionally there's, there's been very little pay TV. So people expect their match, matches to be broadcast live you know, on, on terrestrial TV. And so there's, there's a big problem with the TV rights. The contracts have gone a bit better, uh, especially the, the foreign contracts. But I remember uh, Mr. Hoeness, out of prison now, uh, back in the saddle, so to speak, at Bayern Munich, and deploring the fact that his club was making too much money out of television. And if it had only been him, he would have been in favor of the English model, where the ratio from the 1 to 20 is about 1.51 or something like that. But it was resisted by the accountants at the club, who said, no, we don't want the VC to want to, to give money. But Hannes had seen it, he said, well, if you carry on like that, we're killing our league. If we kill our league, we kill our club. But it's not a move by him. it's not just financial. It systematically destroyed their, their closest rivals. They did it with Leverkusen, what, 15 years ago. They did it with Bremen. Now they've done it with Dortmund. Every year they buy their best player. You may have now done it by buying Janic and Nguyen. But the weird thing is, in Germany, I was in Leipzig last week, and they genuinely don't seem to care. Like the German view, people I've spoken to do not support Bayern Munich, is that Bayern do it better than everybody else. So it's kind of fair enough that they're not they're not cheating, they don't perceive them to be cheating or their their dominance to be sort of to the diminishment of the rest of the league. They think Bayern do it really well, so they, they should be allowed to succeed because of it. Uh, another question? Throw another question. There's one at the front here. I'm going to be cheeky. I've got, so I've got a quick one for Jack. Um, has Roy Cowell passed away yet? And if so, how long he was in his deathbed? Um, but to the panel, when you're talking about um, fans in football almost being brand associates in essence these days, do you not think that the media have got a bit of a role in how that's happening with all the clickbait of the latest player falling out of wings and then 20 votes and some of the misses and stuff like that? Do you not think if there was more highbrow articles in the pit? papers, you get less of the trolls on Twitter? Yeah, I mean, I, I think last time I heard he was playing A, K Athens, or Roy Carroll. He's back in England, isn't he? Yeah, he's, he's still going strong, but thanks. Um, I think, I, th I, know what you, I know what you mean about the issue that we have with, I mean, basically there's a balance to be struck between the things that people like to read in the media and the things that the media ought to be doing. Like, I think that ideally we'd have a media where it was, you know, there was a lot of investigative stuff, a lot of in-depth financial stuff, looking at foreign owners. I mean, e even in the Premier League, there's lots of billion, billionaire foreign owners that we don't know much about. You know, Bournemouth is a very good example. I think that, you know, that some people have very serious questions about where Bournemouth's money's coming from, but people don't know, and that's not through... And that's through basically lack of journalistic resources. I mean, there's only so many journalists who can work on that sort of stuff. The problem is that kind of journalism costs money. It's expensive, it's difficult, there's only so many people who can do it. And if you're, and even then, people aren't desperately keen on clicking on it or paying for it. 
And if you are running a newspaper or a website with not an awful lot of money to throw around, the, the best way of generating lots of traffic for, on your budget is to you know, send people to games and press conferences because it's cheap, and then get people to write kind of strongly felt opinions and get you a few transfer stories here or there. And unfortunately, that, that is just the sad nature of the modern media. And it does mean that lots of incredibly important and difficult to report stories fall slightly by the wayside. You say that, but you should realize that you're very, very lucky in, in the United Kingdom to have actually a press that does its job, you know, with, with this caveat. Uh, there is absolutely no investigative press whatsoever, a sports investigative press in Italy, Spain, or France. Or France, only my paper, France Football, is the only one, basically. It completely doesn't exist. So it's the, the, because they're completely in tour with the big clubs. In Germany, it's a bit different, but England still you know, remains a, a beacon for, for us foreigners in, in terms of uh, the way it's covered. Even if we don't know too much about the owner of Bournemouth, I agree, it's, uh, it's really, he's the mystery man. It's, it's, I'm, I'm biased to an extent, obviously, because we all are, I guess, but it always makes me laugh when people sort of criticise the British media for, for, for partisanship and hold up, say, Italy or Spain. France is maybe not quite as bad, but it's certainly Italy and Spain as being kind of much more reliable. They, their papers support teams. Like you might think that the Mirror hates Man City, or that the... You know, that's true, though, isn't it? The, the, the male <laughs> support West Ham, although that is definitely true. Yeah, that's really true. The, but in, you know, Marcus... The best support in club in the press box, we should... We should West Ham. Yeah. Palace is getting closer. It's starting to change a bit, because yeah. that generation is slowly uh, being retired. But Marker wants Real Madrid to win. Marker actively wants... Barcelona to lose, and it's the same in sports and Mundo Deportivo, and it's in, in Italy it's, it's concealed better. But Tutor Sport is Juventus paper. Do, do you remember that headline when Portugal won uh, the European Championship? It was Portugal wins without Ronaldo. Yeah. yeah they couldn't resist to kick him. Yeah. And then, as Jack says, the other kick thing, him again. You kind of get the lead, <laughs> and it's said through the prison of being a journalist, but you get the lead you, you deserve. So clickbait is only clickbait because people click on it. And we're, we're all guilty. Like, I, you know, if you see a transfer room, you want to find out who's the subject of the transfer room. But ultimately, it's a, they're all businesses, and they have to kind of appeal to the market. And it's really sad. Now, I don't like David Conn does amazing investigative stuff, which I, I couldn't do as a journalist. I'm not good enough as a journalist to do that. But you write something re that you're really proud of that you think is a really interesting story, and you get like three retweets, and you think, well. The fuck was the point of that? <laughs> Basically, and it's quite sad, but that's sadly that you know it's, it's not state funded. It's not kind of we don't get it. It costs money. And we, the, the money has to come from somewhere. Uh, what's the most common on piece I've done this year? A very dull, balanced piece from the Open Club with a guy put a ridiculous headline on. Where you call for him to be sacked. <laughs> where, where the implication of the headline which I didn't write was that he was people were running out of patience with him. Typical anti-clockwise from the usual. Uh, I think we've probably got time for one more question before the break, if there is one. There are, there are many questions. Hello. Um, so obviously you guys uh, have, like, we opened up tonight talking about the, uh, like, the transfer window, which, and sort of the extremities to which it's gone to, but obviously the blizzard is kind of like an antithesis of that because of the stories often focus on, like, sort of smaller, uh, you know, the, the highlight things perhaps in bygone years and things that are often, uh, you know, like overlooked. Would you say that, like, you know, 
you guys, <laughs> as journalists, obviously, like Jonathan, you like obviously on Five Live, so that's going to be something that, like, a day to day that you do. But is the temptation to get carried away with you know the the, the modern day stories and just really sort of to do with like the, more to do with the blizzard and like what you know it because as you said like the, the the things that you write about that get three retweets for example you know that might be your best story to write but is that something because that's what you're passionate about you know like whereas obviously something that might be more popular is well I, I think you've got to get the balance right i mean with with blizzards um you know, we we try and be as effective as possible, so you know, we'll, there's no sort of conscious policy, but we, we ideally would not have every story about Kazakh football in the 1960s. Um, you, know, you try and have a couple of Premier League stories or you know, a, an interview with somebody famous, and then you know, the, the slightly more obscure pieces, but even the obscure pieces, you hope there's still kind of a, a general interest there. What, what we don't do is, is put it online and subject it to comments, because that would be incredibly depressing. Um, and I, you know, I'm fortunate in, my, you know, in, the, in the normal job that I, I do a mix of things. Um, I mean, I, journalism, I think, falls into sort of three categories. You have, you have people who are very good at the, the day-to-day news, which I think none of us would say would necessarily... You're probably the, the best out of the four of us, but I don't think any of us would say it's a four A. We have the sort of colory, featurey, thinky pieces, which is what we all do. And we have the investigative stuff, which Philippe, you, you've uh, won awards for. So, um, that's in ascending order of importance. <laughs> well, they're all important. You need all three. Uh, and yeah, I, I, can, I, I do, I, you know, the stuff I do for betting websites, I guess, is sort of the day to day stuff, which is what do I think is going to happen in this game? It's quite a useful discipline, I think, to get into. You write that. It's finished. You don't think about it again. But if you write a five thousand word feature, obviously that takes several days, maybe weeks. You write a, a hundred eighty-seven thousand word book, and it takes you three and a half years. So it felt like a lot more. <laughs> uh, so we're about to have a break, I think, uh, so we can all go have a cigar. Um, but before we do, uh, I wanted to ask you an offbeat and quirky question. Uh, Alan Hansen famously said that Manchester United will win nothing with kids. And at the end, at the end of that season, their team that was built around loads of 30-year-olds won the title, and yet for some reason it was, went down in history as though he was really wrong. Um, what is your, your win nothing with kids moment? Um, I remember... Jack Scott Lowe's. I think my personal favorite was, do you remember in December 2012 when Aston Villa won 3-1 at Anfield. Yes. Um, after that game, I and that was kind of as good as Paul Lambert's Aston Villa ever got, which isn't saying an awful lot, but they were pretty good that day, and Bentaki was really, really good. And I tweeted after the game something like, this game proves why Paul Lambert is a much better manager than Brendan Rodgers. He's much more imaginative and tactically flexible. And, you know, it was kind of forgotten about at the time. Some people called me a cunt, but... Um, <laughs> The problem wasn't actually then. The problem was the following season when Liverpool were brilliant, beating everyone kind of 5-0 outside. And until the very, as you all know, until the very, very, very end of the season, it looked as if Liverpool were going to win the league. 
And this was, of course, a great vindication for Brendan Rodgers, although in reality we know it's more to do with Luis Suarez. But every single Saturday evening after Liverpool had just put four or five past anyone else, it would get retweeted over and over and over again by <laughs> Liverpool fans on the internet, who are a pretty opinionated, enthusiastic bunch. And, uh, and, my phone would, uh, and my phone would just explode every Saturday evening with these Liverpool fans. Oh, you know, this proves how biased you are against us and so forth. And of course, the problem is that I did look stupid because I was wrong. Like, Paul Lambert was a terrible manager, as he showed again at, uh, at, in his next job and then at Blackburn Rovers, which he left this summer to be replaced by Owen Coyle. Uh, so that's, I mean... You know, there's, there's a lot to choose from, but that's probably the worst call that stands out. I can't do one of these because that's also mine. I, I, I think at Norwich, when Lambert was at Norwich and Rodgers was at Swansea, and it looked like they were, they were both going to get big jobs, I said that Lambert was a better manager than Rodgers because he was much more flexible. His teams changed formation within games. But to be honest, I think history might yet prove us both right. <laughs> <laughs> well, history won't prove me right in this way. I said, and I really, the minute I said it on radio, I thought, what on earth have I just done? <laughs> I said, Javinho is better than Eden Hazard. <laughs> now, you're laughing, but Javinho, what I wanted to say was that Javinho was more important for Lille when they did the double with Rudy Garcia than Eden Hazard. And that is correct. This being said, I was totally wrong. And um, fortunately, nobody's reminded me of it yet, but I am sure that Gareth will make sure that, yeah, he's done it already, uh, so the abuse that uh, Jack uh, suffers at the hands of Liverpool fans, like all of us, by the way, uh, never tweet about Liverpool is the first uh, commandment. Don't, don't tweet about Liverpool, Arsenal, or Manchester United. Well. Or negatively about any team in the Premier League. <laughs> Just say everything's great all of the time. So adopt the Henry Winter attitude. Basically. Yeah, Henry Winter. <laughs> I mean, football. Bloody brilliant. Uh, except, the one man you're allowed to criticise on Twitter at all times is Sam Allardyce. That's the first rule of Twitter, is that everybody hates Sam Allardyce. I don't. Really? Kept us up, I see. Brilliant. But then he betrayed you by going to England. He cockamamed the England job. Proud. Cut him, will, will he not bleed white with like a red cross on it? Yes. It's no wonder he kept you know, getting Bradley Walsh and Paddy McGuinness to do a quiz. <laughs> it's inspirational. What's your biggest mistake, Jonathan, if ever you've made one? Well, there's so few. Um, I, I think, I mean, it, the thing that gets retweeted all the time is actually also made an Azar thing. So I suggested when. Um, uh, Kagawa signed for United that he was a better sign. I think it was a better deal. Because uh, he's about half the price of Hazard. And that gets retweeted all the time, totally out of context. Um, I remember 2009 watching uh, Barcelona beat Chelsea in the Champions League semi final and thinking they're going to get absolutely battered by United in this final. And for seven minutes, I was pretty confident I was right. <laughs> then, then things changed. Um, but actually, my biggest gap is, is it's slightly, slightly different. And I, I, I was. Yeah, we, we, I've, I've snagged off editors for um, headlines, so I've now got to praise Andy for getting me out of jail on this one. Uh, I was at uh, Ghana v Nigeria, which played at Brentford in 2007. Uh, Are you expecting someone to correct you? <laughs> <laughs> I said that was your job. <laughs> um, and uh, Ghana won 4 1. First time they've beaten Nigeria in, I think, 18 years. 
And so my, my, my copy, thanks to, it was a very cold night, so my typing wasn't quite as precise as it might have been, said they had not eaten their West African rivals for 18 years. <laughs> and thank God it was a sub we put the uh, And on that bombshell, uh, we'll be back in about a quarter of an hour. Thank you very much. Thank <laughs> you.